This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. The following is a presentation of A's Cast, your free 24-7 nonstop destination for A's baseball. From baseball's top personalities. The great Chris Russo joins us once again. To the game's top players. Joining us is the All-Star. Matt Chapman with us. You never know what stories you're going to hear. If you make your way down here, I, I might be able to make some time and go out there and see the great Chris Townsend. This is A's Unfiltered with Chris Townsend. Welcome back to A's Unfiltered with Chris Townsend. This edition is going to be all national writers. Robert Murray from Fansided.com, Bob Nightingale from the USA Today, and Ben Ryder, and he's got the great podcast uh, about the Houston Astros, and it's fascinating. We'll start out with Robert Murray, national baseball columnist. Robert, how are you doing? Chris Townsend with the Oakland A's. Hey, how you doing? I'm doing great. Yeah, no, we appreciate you you coming on. I mean, obviously a very interesting time uh, in baseball where we have so many players out there who are available and we still have a lot of unknowns. Yeah, it is going to be probably one of the most unpredictable off seasons in recent memory, if not like of this century. Um, there's so many agents and teams who have no idea what to expect. And the general theme basically is, these teams are going to end up waiting for a lot of these players because there's a surplus of, of free agents available. Um, and they're going to try to wait so they can uh, get them for pennies on the dollar. So it's, uh, it's going to end up being a really slow off season, especially with the winter meetings. Um, it's just, it's, it's not going to be the most fun one to say the least. Yeah. We're kind of bummed. We, you know, we go to the winter meetings and we were hoping to be in Dallas. I mean, how, how, how do you think this is all going to work out a zoom winter meetings? Yeah, so basically, I've been asking people today like, what this winter meeting has been like, and I had a GM say, if there was a winter meeting, no one told me. And it's basically been um, a continuation of what's gone on this offseason. It's just teams talking, and um, but nothing, like, right now, this has not been anything out of the ordinary. Um, and we're missing a, a key part of the offseason where a lot of these teams at the winter meetings laid on their groundwork for what they're going to do in the offseason and get a general idea for what's going to be available. So um, I think that's also going to really contribute to what already is a very slow offseason. And, and, you know, I get asked all the time about, like, our free agents. And I'm like, I, I don't know what the market is. I don't know what the market is, the market is for Marcus Simeon or, or Liam Hendricks or Tommy Listella. I mean, uh, you've talked about Marcus Simeon. Other teams are looking at him and wondering, can we move him off shortstop? Yeah, that was something that came to my attention a couple of weeks ago, and I had done more digging on it. And so these teams are looking at Simeon. For the majority of them are looking at him as a shortstop because he's improved defensively as a shortstop. But there's been other teams that have asked about his willingness or his ability to play second and third bases. And I'm not sure if that's going to be a full-time role or a part-time role or what they have planned. But Simeon works out at that position or at those positions uh, during the season and a little bit in the off season too. So he's got the versatility card in his bag. I don't know if that's going to end up being 
what he signs or what he does uh, this upcoming season and beyond. But um, teams are asking about it, and, and having that kind of chip in his in his arsenal is actually a pretty good thing. Yeah, and then you just—I I, mean—you you, kind of wonder—is anybody? I mean, is anybody really going to spend big money this offseason? I know the Mets have been the one team we've looked at, but now we're getting mixed—we're uh, getting mixed signals out of Philadelphia. It kind of sounds like the Cubs maybe looking to move people. I mean, how many teams do you think are really going to be out there spending this offseason? There's not going to be too many. And you mentioned the first one with the Mets. That is a team that everybody's looking at and looking at Steve Cohen and his $14 billion of, of his net worth. And they're thinking that they're going to spend a lot. And initially they have. And they're said to be really aggressive by other teams and agents who have been in contact with them. But if we're looking at other teams we are going to try to spend – I think the number two team is actually the Toronto Blue Jays. And they are probably actually right up there with the Mets in terms of aggressiveness, if not above the Mets. And their GM even went on the record a couple of weeks ago, or actually last week, and said that they have multiple deals that they're just waiting to pull the trigger on. And you'd never hear a GM speak like that, especially in a market like this where seemingly every team is, is looking to sell off. Um, and then the, the, the other team that, I could see spending as the Giants. Um, my indication from talking to people around the league is they're not going to try to spend the top dollar on a George Springer or a Trevor Bauer or anything like that, but they're going to spend uh, and they're going to try to spend for this year and also have the financial flexibility going forward. I would really look for them to, to try to add a, a left-handed reliever or two and, and possibly one name to watch out for is Brad Hand. Well, you, you know, you mentioned one team, which it, it'll be fascinating to see how it goes down. But uh, as we like to call them, the Buffalo Blue Jays, the odds of them <laughs> playing Canada, at least at the start of the season, is probably pretty ill. So if they're going to be spending. They're probably going to be spending and still probably playing in Buffalo. Yeah, that's a huge wild card. And it's it's kind of bizarre to think about. And. I wonder what this this upcoming season is going to look like from Major League Baseball as a whole, but uh, the Toronto Blue Jays and possibly having to play in Buffalo would, uh, for lack of a better phrase, not be great. Um, but th that's the kind of world we live in now, and um, and hopefully we have a vaccine by then so they can actually play in Toronto and, and not have to do that in Buffalo. You know, the thing, the thing we have so many big market teams that, um, well, I don't, I don't, you know, we don't know – truly the direction. I mean, you start looking at the Cubs, you start looking at the, the Red Sox, there's some big names out there. Obviously Cleveland's talked about uh, trading Lindor. What's, what's, what's the big move you see out there that you think could happen? Yeah, I think Lindor is the one that a lot of people are anticipating and his market is going to end up being strong. You met, you see Toronto mentioned with him. Uh, they've seemingly been mentioned with everybody. But Lindor is going to draw a lot of interest. But the one thing that could really end up impacting the, the Indians in this negotiation, actually, there's two things. So one, Lindor has only one year left on his contract. And teams are going to want to have Lindor uh, possibly have an extension in place or have the idea of what an extension is going to look like. And then you also have to look at the upcoming free agent class for shortstops. That includes Lindor, uh, Baez, and a bunch of others who are top-notch uh, shortstops. And that could really impact what the Indians are able to get in return for Baez because, or for uh, for Lindor, just because when you have these guys all available next year and you're looking for a shortstop, you're not going to want to give up uh, all these top prospects and um, 
when they're all just going to be free to sign in the in the next 365 days. So it's, I think Lindor is going to be traded. I think it's going to end up being later in the off season. Uh, the other name to watch out for is Chris Bryant. Um, the Cubs, they're trying to sell off some pieces here. And Bryant seems like the most likely one to go. Um, of the two, though, I would say Lindor is the most likely. But I, I'm not going to rule out a Chris Bryant trade at all. I think those are the two names we really need to watch out for this winter. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the Cubs have kind of talked about this for the last couple of years. It, it's like they've got these good players, but they're not in love with their good players. It's the truth, and it's the the weird thing about the Cubs is they've had this really good core in place for a while, but they have not been able to get the most out of them, and they've kind of plateaued. Um, and it's it's just it's bizarre, um, and a lot of people are trying to figure out exactly why. Uh, they have obviously switched managers, going from Joe Madden to David Ross. Uh, they've switched the major league coaching staff around pretty frequently. Um, so I wonder if a change of scenery to get out of Chicago. Uh, would be beneficial for Brian or some of these other guys. And it's going to end up being a major overhaul for this roster because they've made it pretty clear that this is going to end up being a, a pretty significant rebuild. Um, and it's not going to be a one-year, two-year, or three-year rebuild. It's going to end up being quite a while. And they're going to try to stay competitive at the same time. And um, that's a challenge that Jed Hoyer is, is facing with Theo Epstein gone. Is he's got he's to head this rebuild and uh, and try to find a GM to go alongside with him to do it. Um, it's it, they have the pieces in place to get some pretty significant prospects in return. But that being said, it's, it's going to end up being uh, a doozy of a rebuild for those guys. Is that why Theo left? Yeah. And he's also been pretty um, adamant about not wanting to be in a place for more than 10 years. And he was coming up on that number and that's, uh, that's a Bill Walsh kind of staple is you, you don't want to be in a place for too long and cause you don't want to have these ideas get stale on you. And, um, and that was a huge reason why he ended up leaving. Plus he wants to end up finding a new challenge in baseball. And, um, a lot of people think he's going to end up going to an ownership group at some point, but he's going to take the time off in the, in the near future to spend with his family and, and catch up before like fully diving into that possibility. You know, we've been talking about the potential of Billy Bean leaving the Oakland athletics, um, if he does leave the A's, what do you think about his legacy and everything that he was able to do from uh, a ton of winning, making a movie about him, uh, Brad Pitt playing you in a movie and it was Oscar. Uh, what, what were your thoughts be on Billy Bean? Yeah. I, anytime you can have Brad Pitt play in a movie, I think that's a pretty successful kind of, kind of thing. But if we're being serious, um, his legacy is historic. And the kind of impact that he had on the game is you, you cannot describe it because he's changed the game forever. And you see a lot of these teams today doing what he's done for a long time. And, and the A's may not have the highest payroll. They might not have the best players, but they've continually won. And that's a credit to him. That's a credit to Melvin. That's a credit to just the people he's put in place. And he's hired some really good people. And that's why you always see Forrest mentioned with diff- different jobs. You also see Billy Owen mentioned with different jobs is it's not just the strategy that he's put in place, but it's the people he's put around him. And that is something that when you talk to people who have worked with Billy, is he's an egoless guy. Is he puts these guys in a position to win. He puts them in a really good position to, um, with a plan that's, that's worked and it's had a proven track of, of success. So I give him a ton of credit. Baseball would be a completely different game without him. And if he ends up leaving, which it seems likely at this point, the A's are going to miss him and so is baseball. 
Yeah, no doubt about it. Let's end on this. Um, what are you looking forward to? I know it's going to be a slow off season, but as we get towards Christmas, New Year's, get to the start of the new year, hopefully a vaccine is available. And what are you looking forward to this off season in baseball? Uh, yeah, I think the big thing is getting the the vaccine for uh, so we can have some clarity for the, throughout the off season. But I'm all, like, if we're sticking like just completely to baseball. I, I'm looking forward to some of these top free agents signing. And George Springer, he's going to end up dictating the market for the offensive side. Same with JT Realmuto. Um, but if we're sticking with uh, the Oakland side, I think Liam Hendricks has got the right-handed reliever market kind of on hold for, him for right now. And his market has been really strong. And once his once he ends up going off the board, I think we're just going to see a rush of, of free agent signings um, from a, just all these different relievers. And there's a lot of them available. Um, so I, I think watching those two top free agents go off the board, I think that's going to end up changing the offseason and get this thing really just going. And uh, my indication is, is it's not coming anytime soon, but that can always change with one phone call. But uh, that is going to be the, that's going to be the one thing I'm really looking forward to this offseason. Well, I mean, there's so many players that are available. I mean, isn't it crazy? Yeah, it's it's nuts. Like, there's over 300 players available right now, and there's going to end up being more throughout the off season and everything. And it's just, it, it's it's not good. This has been the, the worst case scenario for the players' association. Is there's so many players that are available, and all these teams are claiming that they don't have money to spend on these players, and uh, it's something's got to change at some point. I just don't think it's going to be anytime soon. Hey, great stuff. We appreciate it. Be safe, and we'll talk to you in the new year. Hey, that sounds great. I appreciate you having me. Robert was solid. You know it was also solid? Bob Nightingale. I've been interviewing Bob Nightingale for like 25 years. This guy is the goods from the USA Today. Here's Bob Nightingale. And now, from one amazing to another, the great Bob Nightingale from the USA Today joins us here on A's Cast Live. Bob, how are you? Yeah, doing great, Chris. Thank you. Well, I got to tell you, I was looking forward, you know, the winter meetings, you know, San Diego last year was so much fun. This year was going to be Dallas. It's just, uh, it's just sad. We're not going to be able to go. Yeah. I mean, uh, all they're doing is manager uh, Zoom calls next week, you know, week after what would really be the winter meetings. And uh, yeah, it's not going to be the same. I mean, even though 90% of the rumors were false and people chasing things that weren't true. It was so fun to be around and, and see everybody. Yeah, you know, it, it's really kind of it, – it, it reminded me it's like the Super Bowl or it's like the NCAA tournament. Uh, it, it's where the entire industry can get together because we don't see each other throughout every single season. So it's really like the one place, the winter meetings, where everybody in the sport gets to see each other. Yeah, a lot of times, uh, you know, a lot of people don't travel during the playoffs. So it's really the last time you've seen people was the regular season, you know, ending in September. And then, uh, you know, you stay there for uh, four or five days and knowing that you know, you're going to see everybody not until next spring. So it's almost like that was the end of the baseball season, you know, uh, officially was at the end of the winter meetings. So a big question that I have and, you know, whether it's going to be Lindor or it's going to be Bryant, Whoever the big guy that's going to get Arenado, I don't know who's going to get traded. But how do you make a trade? And you're looking at a lot of prospects, whether they were at the alternate site or they weren't even at the alternate site. 
How do you do a deal right now when you're talking to these GMs when you're you're talking about acquiring players who haven't played in over a year? Yeah, that's a that's a big problem. It's like a uh, you know, when you train for prospects, who knows where these prospects uh, regress in time or you know or keep improving? Yeah, we don't know. So you're kind of taking a gamble on those prospects, which make a a, a trade harder. Particularly, we're talking about a guy like uh, Ellen or, or Arenado, you know, two proven guys, uh, you know, with with a lot of, um, you know, being paid a lot of money. So yeah, it just complicates matters even more. Yeah, you take a young Chris Townsend, Bob, and if I wasn't playing and I'm like 23 years old, who knows what kind of trouble I was getting in at that point? <laughs> well, exactly. I'm just nobody's seen these guys. I mean, uh, you know, we see it all the time with these. Uh, prospects are hyped up and never really, you know, amount to anything. And some guys who, well, you don't hear about become studs. So who knows what, what happened to these, you know, these kids in 2020. You know, I, I don't think it's good for the sport, but I do think it's good for the A's. And one thing that I've always respected about you is the fact that you know every team. Because, you know, sometimes you talk to people on the East Coast and you can tell they have no idea about the AL West. They have no idea about the A's. There are going to be so many of the big boys. I think like Boston. I think about Chicago. I'm talking about the Cubs, not the White Sox. There's some of the big boys out there that seem like they're just content with being in rebuild mode. I just don't know how many teams are going to be like in it to win it. I know the A's are one. I can look at the Yankees. I can look at the Dodgers. I can look at the Rays. How many teams do you think are really going to be out there who are really going to try and win the World Series in 2021? No, that's a great question, Chris. I mean, look at the uh, look at the NL Central, for instance. I mean, there's not a team there that's spending money and trying to win. You know, the Cubs are unloading, the Reds are unloading. You know, Pittsburgh's rebuilding, and on and on. Uh, so yeah, you wonder how many teams are really you know in this thing to win. You're, you're exactly right. Uh, you know, all these teams took took losses. You know, maybe they changed their mind come uh, you know come July or so during the trade deadline. But right now, everybody's being cautious, pretty much. You know, when I think about the Cubs deal, it's it's kind of strange. It's like they have this core. They've won a World Series. They've been to the playoffs. And now the front office doesn't like their players. What's going on in Chicago? Well, I think they're, you know, very disappointed. Yeah, they won the World Series in 2016. Uh, you know, who knows if they would have won it, you know, with the Giants bullpen collapse in game four. They would have had, uh, you know, uh, in, in game five, you know, in, in Chicago, they had their horse going. So who knows if they would have won that year, if not for the bullpen struggles of the Giants. So we'll we'll see. But the, uh, you know, they haven't won a playoff game since 2017. I just think they, that group underachieved. You know, yeah, they won the World Series. They broke the curse. But you expected more. This group thought they were going to have a dynasty, and it didn't happen. So now they're saying, you know what, we've watched this long enough. It's time to break it up. You know, when I think of that, you know, Nolan Arenado, if you trade for him, you're basically taking on a lot of cash. So that, uh, I believe personally, kind of like Mookie Betts, you won't. And they had to absorb price also. So the Dodgers didn't have to give up top prospects. I'm thinking because of Arenado, you take on his money, you won't have to give up your best prospects. Lindor and Bryant may be different. What do you think it's going to take to get them from their franchises? Like, how good do you think the package has to be? 
Well, I think of the three guys on doors, a top guy, you know, you're only paying them uh, one year, you know, and uh, about $19 million. Uh, you know, he's, he's so consistent, you know, charismatic, uh, can draw fans, you know, which of course is a, uh, you know, a detriment because you don't know how many fans will be even be allowed. So maybe you take away, you know, and negate that popularity right there. Uh, I think he's the prize of the three. Uh, you know, Bryant's coming off a, a, a terrible year. Has not been quite that same guy. He's going to cost about $19, $20 million uh, also. And you're right with Arenado. You know, who's, who's going to step up and take that salary? Uh, you know, I mean, the Dodgers could if they wanted to. I don't see the Dodgers paying, you know, $35 million a year for the next six years when the Rockies couldn't, can't wait for someone to uh, take them off their hands. Are you shocked how bad the relationship went between the Rockies and Arenado. I mean, he signs the contract and I want to be a Rocky for life. And then ever since then, it's been a disaster. It really has been. I mean, he and uh, the general manager don't speak to each other. Uh, you know, he clearly wants out. He would love to go to the Dodgers. You know, I think in hindsight, he kind of wishes he had signed that contract and waited to sign with the Dodgers a free agent. You know, but you, know, you can't turn down that kind of money. Uh, it was so great. But I think he was told that, hey, we're going to build around you and we're going to be a, a consistent contender. And all they've done since is just, you know, cost cutting. You know, when you're a non-tendering, a guy like David Dahl, you know, who was just a, uh, would it cost two and a half, three million dollars in arbitration. Then it kind of raises your eyebrows like, wait a minute now, you know, they're going the other direction. And uh, I don't see how they can afford him and Trevor Story. And Trevor Story is a free agent here. Yeah, how many, Bob, how many of these teams are going to use COVID-19 as an excuse to dump a bunch of payroll? Well, I think everybody, yeah. I mean, I just think they, they lost over uh, you know $100 million uh, last year, each team uh, on the average. And they're saying, you know what, uh, you know, besides losing money last year, they don't know what they'll get it, you know, gain it back this year. I mean, there's no, there's no uh, idea whether uh, when the season will start, how many games we played how many fans will be allowed. So it's going to be a, uh, you know, a, a very tough year financially again in 2021. And at some point, you know, we got to get word out of New York, like what, what, what are going to be like, like roster size? Like what, what, you know, when do you think we're going to hear that? I mean, obviously the DH, we're now thinking the DH may not be in the national league, but when do you think we're going to hear like, I mean, at some point you got to know, we're going to have, 26 guys are going to have 28, 30. Like, what do you think we're going to know? I don't think we're going to know until almost spring training, you know, like the DH. I don't think we'll know until at least another month from now. I think we'll have the DH. I can see why MLB tells teams don't count on it because, you know, we may not have an agreement. Uh, MLB is saying, hey, we'll have a DH if you guys let us have expanded postseason. And the unions say, no, uh, you know, we think it's worth more than that. Uh, giving you expanded postseason. So we want more than just a DH. So I think those arguments will continue. Uh, you know, I, I think reasonably, if we have a long, uh, if we have a, at least a 140, 162 game season, I think they'll probably stick with 26 uh, man roster. You know, maybe 28 in the first month, perhaps. But I, I think if you're a team, you've got to count on just 26. You know, listening to that answer, Bob, I'm thinking to myself, if, if I'm a player, and I'm paying dues to the union, and you're trying to tell me you're you're not approving the DH in the National League, which is a high-paying job, means more jobs. 
and this is all about a political, uh, uh, or I should say a negotiation piece. If I'm a player, especially as we, we talk about how we're so concerned with older players, older players make great DHs. I got to think I wouldn't be happy. Like if I'm a player, I would want the DH in both leagues. Well, the players do no doubt about it. And the union does too. And I think, you know, secretly MLB does as well. Even the, uh, the National League owners in, like, in St. Louis and Cincinnati and Chicago that were so opposed to it, now they're uh, embracing it. Where it really hurts, Chris, is guys who were uh, really DHs, a guy like a, uh, a Nelson Cruz. Uh, if you have 30 teams bidding on them instead of 15, really yeah. enhances its value. You know, same as a, uh, a Marcelo Zuna, you know, who's way, way below average uh, defensively, but, but he can hit. So it certainly affects, you know, a few of those guys. So in, in your long career, are you ever going to miss watching a pitcher hit? Uh, no. I mean, I, I did like the strategy of, uh, you know, do you leave the guy in there for a pinch hitter? I mean, you know, or, uh, or, or take him out and go for it. You know, that sort of thing. You know, it didn't come out very often. I remember Tony La Russa used to say there was more strategy in the American League. And his reasoning why was that, uh, in American League, you kind of know when to take your uh, starting pitcher out. In the National League, you got to you know make a judgment call. Like, okay, you know, am I going to risk having this guy hit in a couple innings, or should I just take him now and go and go for the juggler with a pitch hitter? So, but the but the pitchers have just got terrible over the years hitting wise. I mean, guys like Greg Maddox can always lay down a bunt. Uh, you know, there are guys who are good at hitting pitchers like Madison Bumgarner, but those days are gone. Oh my God! I mean, we we went back over like the seventies A's. Catfish Hunter could swing it. Ken Holtzman, Vita Blue, like these guys actually were legit threats that were getting hits in World Series games, playoff games. But yeah, I mean, it just it it got to a point to where they're kind of useless. I want to ask you before we let you go about Dick Allen. Um, unfortunately, uh, he passed away at seventy eight, and we've been looking at his numbers. I mean, he's got the same OPS plus as Willie Mays. How is he not in the Hall of Fame? You know, I think his, his, his career was, uh, you know, sh- um, shorter. Uh, you know, it wasn't long like Willie Mays and some of these guys. I think some of the off-the-field stuff hurt him as far as, you know, not always showing up on time, that sort of thing. Uh, you know, obviously, playing during a very, uh, you know, racial tension time and where he kind of fought back and wasn't beloved by the writers and things like that. So, yeah, I think the analytics really helped him. And I remember doing a story to him during the last election. And, uh, you know, he said it didn't bother him getting in, but he wanted to get in just because of all his you know, good friends and family wanted it so bad. He just missed out on one vote. His loyal supporters were just outraged that the Hall of Fame wasn't going to have a, uh, a veterans committee this year because they couldn't meet in person because of COVID. You know, and the reason why was some of these guys are going to pass away. You know, so if you go in the Hall of Fame when you're not alive, you know, you can defeat the purpose. And, of course, that's what's happened here with, with uh, Dick Allen. Yeah, it's, it, it, it's so sad because, yes, you live forever in the Baseball Hall of Fame. But it's just, I mean, if you never get your moment in the sun, it's really, really sad. Yeah, you know, you always feel bad, too, when the uh, guys get elected and, to the Hall of Fame and induction ceremony, but then, you know, their, their parents aren't alive to see it or something like that. So, yeah, it, 
you want you certainly want that person to be alive and all the, you know their, their closest family members to see it as well. You know, it's almost like a uh, you know in Chicago with Ron Sano. You know, when he got in, everyone in Sano win, but he wasn't alive to see it. You know, just you know very uh, very empty feeling. Well, I was hoping to see at the winter meetings. I'm now just going to like cross my fingers and hope I, I, I can see it spring training. Yeah. Spring training will be interesting. Be interesting to see if they, uh, when they have it, uh, if it will be allowed on, on premise or, or what have you. Uh, yeah, I think it's going to be fascinating. I would think a lot of reporters in the gates to watch, but certainly not in the clubhouse or anything like that. So I think going to be different times all next year as well. Well, uh, everything you've done for me all these years, all the different radio stations and what we do here with A's Cast Live, I've always appreciated you coming on the program. And, uh, of course, the work you do for the USA Today is second to none. Be safe, my friend, and we'll talk soon. And have a great holidays and a great Christmas. You too. Thank you, Chris. Take care. And last but not least, Ben Ryder, the Edge podcast on the Astros. Man, this guy knows everything that's been going on with the Houston Astros, and let's just say it hasn't been good. And Ben joins us now. Ben, how are you? Thank you for coming on the program. We appreciate it. I'm good. Thanks for having me. So, you know, I've been so curious to ask you this. You know, we've heard so much about what has happened with the organization and the Astros. What's something that probably our listeners don't know? <laughs> well, uh, there's a lot, I think, that your listeners don't know. As you know, uh, I spent most of 2020 diving into this story that I thought I knew after having written about it and covered it for so many years to get to the bottom of uh, the Astros cheating scheme. What happened, why it happened, who was to blame, and what it really says about not just the Astros, but baseball as a whole. Uh, the series is out now. I think there's a whole lot uh, that I've uncovered that uh, people would be surprised to hear, uh, specifically about the culture in which this happened in baseball back in 2017. This is not to absolve the Astros of anything that they did whatsoever, but I was really interested in the culture of paranoia that pervaded clubhouses, not just the Astros, about sign stealing. There was this sense that it was everywhere. And part of the reasons why the Astros got themselves into hot water is that, you know, they felt like if they were not sign stealing, they were falling behind. So it's a total conspiracy theory that everybody's doing it. <laughs> it's not a conspiracy theory. I don't think. I think, look, what happened is a combination of a lot of factors. First of all, sign stealing, as we know, is not illegal in itself. It never has been. In fact, the first recorded instance of sign stealing was in 1876. This is something that's part of the fabric of the game. What is illegal or what became illegal uh, in 2000, the year 2000, was the use of devices or technology to steal signs. But of course, we're in an era in which technology is exploding, in which video resources, particularly in 2017, were flooding into clubhouses. Uh, these temptations were significant. And the rules against them uh, didn't have many teeth. No one had really been punished for doing this uh, before the Astros, at least as far as individual people being punished. So it was really one of these situations that was just waiting to explode. And for a variety of specific reasons, it exploded in Houston. 
You know, I, I would always tell the story when this was going on, and I would say, don't buy what you're hearing, because you can't tell me that Alex Cora went to Best Buy and bought a camera and bought TVs, took it to the stadium, and then he walked out to center field, and then he set it up to connect. This was <laughs> a whole lot. Like the, the fact that everybody wants to act like they had nothing to do with it, there was a lot of people that had to be involved, wouldn't you say, to make this thing go? There were a lot of people that were involved. Anybody who was regularly in the Astros clubhouse, regularly in the Astros dugout, in the Astros video room, had to know about it. We're talking dozens of people. You know, to your point, the camera that they used was allowed. This, this was a camera that Major League Baseball had approved for training and scouting purposes. Now, what they hadn't improved was the rerouting of this feed to the table behind the dugout next to a trash can. But look, once you have all this stuff around, and once you have a few influential leaders in your clubhouse encouraging everybody that, hey, this is okay, this is what we, we, we're going to do now, if we don't do this, we're going to fall behind, uh, then you start to understand the slippery slope that you can slide down until you're in an area that goes far beyond gamesmanship and without a doubt into the realm of cheating. So you talk to Jeffrey Liu now. Are, are, are you buying his story? It's complicated. And I did talk to Jeff Luno. I talked to Jeff Luno for five and a half hours for this podcast, uh, for two separate interviews. Jeff Luno is adamant that he did not know that his team was doing this, that his coaches were doing this. Uh, and he has a lot of logical reasons as to why. It sounds ridiculous. The leader of the team, the visionary architect who built this laughing stock into a champion, wouldn't be able to see this. It sounds crazy. Uh, it's plausible, though. And in fact, if you look at Major League Baseball's investigation, they talked to dozens of witnesses. They reviewed tens of thousands of documents. They couldn't find a smoking gun. Uh, they couldn't find any firm evidence to show that he knew. But to me, that's not the whole question, right? A big part of the question is, should the leader of an organization know? Should he know? Is he responsible for knowing? Is he responsible for establishing a culture of rules compliance, even in an environment in which this sort of rules breaking wasn't perhaps as unusual as we think? I think the answer to that is yes. So is he responsible? Yes, certainly to some measure, although there are other people who are responsible as well. Did he definitely know that this was happening? No, I don't think so. So I, I keep this away from people who are currently in front office positions. So I asked our, we have a good friend of the program, Ned Coletti, who mm -hmm. uh, I've, I've known Ned since he was assistant GM with the Giants. He was a GM, obviously, of the Los Angeles Dodgers. I asked him, I said, Ned, is there any way this would be going on in your clubhouse and you wouldn't know about it? He said, no way. That's, I mean, that's, and I know Ned well as yeah. well. Uh, and look, one thing you have to know is that there are different types of general managers. Jeff Luno was a top-down manager, right? He delegated a lot. He wasn't around the clubhouse that much. This was his style. Uh, and this is not just coming from him. This is talking to dozens of people that I interviewed for the podcast, some of whom you hear on tape on the edge, some of whom you don't hear, uh, but I talked to you off, off the record or on background. Um, it is not implausible to any of those, these people, including people who were 
pretty close to where the cheating was happening that Jeff Luno didn't know. But once again, I would say that, you know, this could be one of the flaws of his management style. It worked really well in a lot of ways as far as turning this terrible team into a World Series champion. Uh, this could be a blind spot as far as oversight and compliance that obviously he fell short on. And he even admits that he wishes that he'd focus more on those things. So when you investigated this, and obviously you've been a professional for a long time, like how bad was the culture inside the workforce there for the Houston Astros? Look, it was good and bad, right? I mean, obviously it was geared towards success. It was geared towards winning. And they did that a lot. They went over 100 games three straight years. They won a World Series. They just reached their fourth straight American League Championship Series. A lot of people would say, a lot of fans would say, who cares about anything else, right? That's, that's the goal of a baseball team. That's why we watch a baseball team. We want a baseball team to win, and these guys did that. There were some cultural issues, though, within the front office. Uh, it was not necessarily a warm and friendly place. It was an up and out, up or out environment it was an incredibly internally competitive place uh those sorts of things can lead to organizational success it can also lead to a certain amount of unhappiness within the ranks and frankly it can as we've seen lead certain people within that environment to go too far right to to, to go beyond the line to go past the line uh as far as rule breaking i think that that was part of the uh, culture as well perhaps unintentionally as for if you're Jeff Luno, but it kind of came uh, as a matter of course. You know, I got to meet Vanessa Richardson down in Houston when I was working for the Raiders, and we were down there taking on the Texans, and we, we brought her on the program. Did you see her interview with him? I did see her interview with him, yes. And the thing that I thought about after watching that interview, and you tell me, I just, I watched and went, this guy's not going to work in baseball again. Um <laughs> I was like, that's not the interview. If you wanted to get back into the game, that's not the kind of interview that you do where he blamed a lot of other people other than himself, which I still think, and I think you kind of touched on it, like if you did, you're still guilty. If you don't know about it, it really means you're a bad at, at, at managing people. Um, do you think he'll ever work in baseball again? I would say it's going to be tough. And, you know, I, I – I, as I said, conducted my own interview with Luno, um, an extensive interview with him, and we covered uh, a lot of topics, including some of the ones that Vanessa touched on with him. I think that he kind of realizes that for reasons related to sign stealing and not related to sign stealing, he has been made a fall guy for this. Uh, he's somebody that the league has, has pinpointed as perhaps a bad influence as something they don't want around. And clearly, based on some of the developments that have happened since, including the fact that he's currently suing the Astros for the $23 million in guaranteed wages that he lost because the owner of the team, Jim Crane, fired him for cause, it seems pretty likely that Luno at this point understands, if you're going to do something like that, that he's probably not going to come back to baseball, unlike some of the other people who – if you look at it, we're much closer and much more involved in the actual main offense, like A.J. Hinch and Alex Cora, than Luno was. And again, this is not to absolve Luno. I think that he should have known. I think that he should have you know, made sure that it was part of the culture, but that's just the lay of the land.
Yeah, I, I, you know, the, the story to me is fascinating. It reminds me so much of like the New England Patriots um, mm-hmm. and Jim Crane. So we actually had the AT&T out at Pebble Beach and Jim Crane played in the AT&T. He actually did an interview with a local sports station. And after the interview was done, he told the guys, hey, listen, we're not the only ones that were doing it. When you investigate this, how many other teams do you think were doing things similar to what the Astros were doing? My sense is that I would be surprised if there was another team that had gone as far as the Astros went. And really, let's, let's be honest, the felony here was the trash can banging part of it, right? Like that was the part that I would be surprised if other teams had gone that far. Although, to be honest, in the context of baseball history, it's not actually that unusual, which is something I get into in some depth in my podcast, although certainly in the modern era, it's unusual. So I'd be surprised if another team was was doing something that brazen, that blatant. But everybody knows that the video room part of decoding signs, the replay review room part, the Astros were far from alone in doing that. The Red Sox were essentially doing the same thing in 2017 and 2018 uh you know in my podcast i get into some of the suspicions and some of the almost vigilante missions the astros started running trying to catch other teams in the act this was certainly something that was widespread around baseball at least in 2017 and into 2018 i'd be surprised if it's as widespread now or at least or even if it's really happening much at all but that part of it was certainly going on a lot something akin to the trash can banging thing, I'd be surprised. Like, how crazy is that? Is you're cheating, but then you're also trying to catch other teams that you think are <laughs> Well, Luna was, Luna was pretty blunt about it, right? Like, I, I made that point to him. I said, you know, is it possible your guys were paranoid because they knew what they were themselves doing? And Luna said, quote, the best way to catch a cheater is to have been a cheater yourself. And that's what he thought they were doing. That is just, it, it, it really, you know, I mean, hey, put it this way. I know somebody who is around the A's that played Major League Baseball way back in the day and was on the disabled list and was out in center field with binoculars and they had a, a sock on the arm. And if it was like fastball, they'd raise the sock. All right. So this stuff's been going on for a long time. But when, when you start using cameras and TVs and that's where, and I know a lot of people were not happy with Mike Fires. Uh, he's now a free agent, but they weren't happy that he came out about it. But, you know, the A's, we were one of the first teams to complain to Major League Baseball about this. So this, this has not been a secret. Like a lot of teams have known they were doing this before the whole scandal broke. Teams did know. Uh, and, you know, Mike Fires, who I – don't blame at all for what he did. I think that, you know, the truth is important as a journalist and he's certainly within his right to get it out there, especially for the reasons he said in that a lot of guys are going up against this and had no idea uh, what was happening to them essentially. But on the flip side of the coin, this is a long, a long baseball tradition. You know, I, I talk in my podcast about Bob Feller, the great Indians pitcher left the Indians for three years to go fight in world war two in the Pacific. And he came back and he brought this high-powered telescope from the battleship that he was on, had it set up in the center field scoreboard in Cleveland, and would essentially be stealing signs every pitch. They said you could see the dirt under the catcher's fingernails and signaling those pitches 
to the batters at the plate through signs in the scoreboard. Like this is something that's been happening for a long time in baseball. Uh, clearly the norms have changed. The ethics have changed. And we can tell by the reactions of people around baseball, fellow players, not just Mike Fires, that the Astros had really crossed the line with this one and, you know, probably deserve to be punished. And I understand the anger that more people were not punished for doing this than actually were. The the thing that I always look back on with this is like, you know that guys on your team are going to leave. They're going to go (laughs) somewhere else, right? And so if they're going to go play somewhere else, i.e. Mike Fires goes to Detroit, he's going to tell the Tigers what's going on. Like, how did these guys think that they could just – do this and no one would find out it's kind of it's it's flat out dumb it's always been a crazy part of the story especially because you know baseball like guys don't usually leave teams on great terms right or they don't often do (laughs) they get cut like whatever they get traded when they don't want to be traded stuff like that that kind of said to me uh two things right one is that the code of clubhouse silence the omerta of the clubhouse really is strong in baseball. And in fact, we might not know anything about this still, anything concrete. If one guy, Mike Fires, hadn't broken that code in the view of a lot of people and come out, two is the sense that what I was talking about before, right? That probably people in the Astros clubhouse, the players maybe didn't think it was that unusual or maybe didn't recognize that it was that unusual, perhaps because of this culture of paranoia that had developed. Like those are the only two things that I can think of, or at least that I discovered why such a what's in retrospect such a ridiculous and brazen and outrageous scheme uh, was able to be pulled off for so long and by so many people. That's the other thing as well. Like this takes like forty people's complicity to pull this thing off uh, for the number of months that they did. It's really one of the more amazing parts of the whole story. Yeah, I, I, you know, George Springer's a free agent, and I've said on this show, uh, at some point, fans will be back in the ballpark, and this is one of those stories where time doesn't heal. People are going to still be angry. People are going to come after them. Uh, we were told by multiple sources that those guys were worn out at, at the end of spring training before COVID started, that the Astros would have had a horrific season if they had to play in front of fans because they were not dealing with it well. Uh, I just, you know, when you really think about it long term, how much do you think, you know, for for like Springer, I'm like, if I'm him, I get out of Dodge now. Right. I I, I get a contract, go somewhere else and try and get away from this. How do you think this affects these players long term? Well, yeah, I mean, I don't think there's any way that George Springer is going back to Houston, uh, even without this being a factor. I I think that they're just not going to pay up for him. I think he had a great run there. Uh, this sign-stealing scandal aside, obviously. I talked to a lot of people about this. I talked to a guy named Dave Trembley, who's a longtime baseball man. He was their third base coach and bench coach in the early part of their run. And he said, look, no matter where these guys go, this is something they're going to have to live with for the rest of their lives. Will it be as acute as it probably will be whenever fans get back in the ballpark and the Astros are visiting their stadiums? No, like I think that's going to be really when you're going to feel it, uh, hopefully starting next season uh, for the guys that are left. But look, this is always going to be part of their legacies. Will it be the dominant one? Probably not, but it's always going to be with Jose Altuve 
Carlos Correa, certainly Carlos Beltran, all these players who had done something great in 2017 in particular and had this like almost unimpeachable reputation because this is a very likable team at the time, this kind of scrappy team that had come up from nothing to become champions. Uh, they'll never be that way again, that's for sure. It's fascinating. I, I And we talk about it a lot. And obviously, you know, from an A's perspective, this is, you know, the A's have complained to Major League Baseball multiple times. The A's, you mm-hmm. know, back-to-back years won 97 games and only got them into a wild card game. So we've been real interested in this because it definitely has affected. But great work by you. Just it, it's the, the story, as sad as it is, it really is fascinating. It is. It is. And, you know, one of the things that I keep asking myself, one of the big stories is this is a great team or this was a great team no matter what. You know, this is a World Series caliber team. This is a team that would have given the A's a run for their money completely fair. So why did they feel the need to take this step over the edge? Uh, That's one of the big questions that I try to answer through all my reporting. Do you think we'll ever get that answer? You know, that's one of the tragedies is we will never know. You'll never go be able to go back and play that incredible tight 2017 World Series against the Dodgers and, you know, find out what would have happened if it was fair. If we even know what they were doing during that World Series, there's certainly a lot of debate about if they were pulling anything off and certainly if they were doing anything successfully. But everything they accomplished will be tainted, will be clouded by this, and we'll never know what would have happened if it hadn't been. Do you think that the, uh, once again, conspiracy theory, but using buzzers and, you know, did did they expand this beyond the trash can? You know, I found not one shred of evidence that they used buzzers or that they actually did anything beyond kind of the earlier part of 2018 when their science ceiling scheme was limited to the replay review element, replay review room element of it. But again, like, because they did this, you can't put anything past them. Buzzers, you know, signaling from the bullpen, uh, whatever else you want to say. Uh, they, it, it, they can deny it as they have. We can't find any evidence of it. But certainly there'll be a lot of people who will always believe it now. And I can see why. Well, your book is fantastic. So is your podcast. Keep up the great work. It's tremendous journalism. And uh, thank you for coming on the program. Be safe. And and we'll talk again soon. Thanks, man. Look forward to it. Well, I want to thank Robert Murray, Bob Nightingale, and Ben Ryder. Now back to A's Cast, powered by iHeartRadio. This has been a presentation of the Oakland Athletics. 